The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. This week, I found myself on a little website called Amazon.com searching for books about the story of Ruth. And I got a lot of helpful results. Here, Here are just some of the titles. The Day I Met My Boaz. Do You Want a Bozo or a Boaz? God, where is my Boaz? Boaz, open your eyes and see me. Lord, is is Boaz lost or am I just in the wrong field? And then there were some, should we say, more bitter ones. Not waiting on my Boaz. She was waiting on Boaz and missed a real man. And then perhaps my favorite, Boaz is dead. What else is there for me to teach you? If you have a copy of God's word, please turn with me to Ruth chapter two. We're in ancient Israel uh, 3,100 years ago, and we're, we're following one particular family. After a decade away in the pagan country of Moab, an old widow named Naomi returns to town, to, to Bethlehem, accompanied only by her dead son's young Moabite widow, Ruth. I left full, Naomi says, but I've returned empty. But Ruth shows gutsy faith, not only in her mother-in-law, but in her mother-in-law's God saying, where you go, I will go and your God will be my God. Last week, we said that God deserves radical trust, even when he seems hidden, because he's always up to more than we can see. Arguably, that's the main idea of the whole book, but in each section, we we glimpse it from a different angle. So here's what I think is the specific angle we're going to see this morning in chapters two and three. God uses bold trust in bleak times to accomplish his perfect plan. God uses bold trust in bleak times to accomplish his perfect plan. And we'll see this big idea in two major scenes. In chapter two, we'll be in Boaz's field. In chapter three, we'll be at Boaz's feet. In his field and at his feet. First of all, in his field. Look there at the beginning of chapter two. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Well, we haven't met him yet, but this Boaz, but, but the narrator saying, look out for this guy. I mean, yes, we're in the time of the judges when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, but there's one who's a man of character and he happens to be related to Naomi. Verse two, and Ruth, the Moabite, in case we've forgotten, she was until about five minutes ago, a lifelong pagan idolater. She is not the character you'd expect to feature prominently in a Hebrew story. But here she is, and she wastes no time taking action. She said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, why is she saying this? Well, First of all, and most simply, she and Naomi are hungry because they're poor, and they're poor because they have no security, no man to look after them, to protect them, to provide for them. But Ruth is saying more than just, I'm hungry. You're hungry, Naomi. I'm going to try to solve this. Ruth is referencing an old provision in Jewish law. Listen to 
Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, where God instructs landowners, quote, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So the corners and edges of Israelite fields were to be left unharvested. But, but even still, even with that provision, gleaning was still subsistence living. It didn't solve the problem of hunger. I mean, to use a, a modern equivalent, at least my best attempt at one, Ruth is not here saying, hey, here's my plan. I'm going to walk the aisles at Whole Foods shopping for groceries. It's more like my plan is to go rummage through the dumpster behind the store. Middle of verse 2, Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. I mean, you can, you can almost hear just the, the despair in your voice. She has fallen so low, she has nothing left to lose. Meanwhile, her daughter-in-law is endangering herself, entering a stranger's field as an unmarried widow from an enemy country without a male protector. She was utterly vulnerable. Verse 3, so she, Ruth, went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, as it turned out, out. In Hebrew, it's an almost humorous phrase, sort of like the happenstance that happened. It's like the, the narrator with a twinkle in his eye is saying, as pure chance would have it, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of, the harvest, of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, oh, she, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab. See what he's wanting to emphasize? She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, that is Ruth said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So not only does Ruth have the pluck to enter a stranger's field, but she walks right up to the guy who looks like he's in charge and says in, in broken Hebrew, she just issues a request. Sir, I don't want to rummage for snippets at the edges. I want to shadow your harvesters so that I can be positioned to grab the freshly cut grain the moment it hits the ground. There's more in Ruth's voice, though, than just courage. There's also desperation. As one person put it, Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law, and the law looks very different from that point of view. Her proposal presses Boaz beyond the letter of the law to fulfill its spirit. The letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. I'll, I'll let it go today, but don't ever make such a request again. No, 
Well, we are dealing with an exceedingly virtuous man. He says, surprisingly, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Again, Boaz is displaying character exactly opposite to what we would expect in the time of the judges. He's not fixated on maximizing profit or afraid to lose face among the powers that be in Bethlehem. He doesn't seem to care about being whispered about. Did you hear about the Moabite widow, Boaz? He's treating like some Hebrew queen. Brothers and sisters, biblical righteousness is not the art of doing as little as possible to just barely clear the bar. Righteousness is about your heart. That's why Jesus, so famously in the Sermon on the Mount, drives home with the repeated refrain, you've heard it said, do this thing. But I say to you, don't stop there. Go beyond that. Is there an area of, of your life where your mentality is essentially, how little can I do and still be okay in the eyes of God? Or how little can I do and, and still be okay in the eyes of the RCBC elders or the people in my home group? Imagine, though, if the mentality of this church, of, of us together as members, was rather, who else can I serve? And how much? How can I go beyond the bare minimum expectation to heap excessive kindness, excessive, over-the-top, unexpected kindness on someone who needs it with no strings attached? And I just want to say, I mean, this is the part of the sermon where pastors get a little scoldy, but I want to say, actually, having served as your lead pastor for the last nine months, I think you all have excelled in this very kind of thing. I commend you for being a congregation that is big-hearted, big-hearted and open-handed in your love and your practical concern for one another. Keep it up, beloved. Keep plotting ways that you can surprise others with practical service and care. Well, needless to say, Boaz's generous response shocks Ruth. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? a foreigner. No spirit of entitlement. She can't believe the favor, the unmerited, unearned favor that Boaz apparently is just handing to her. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people who you didn't know before. 
May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's a beautiful phrase. That's why Psalm 91 was our scripture reading earlier. Just notice a few things from these verses. First of all, Boaz isn't just some ancient philanthropist. We shouldn't reduce him to that. This isn't just generic goodwill, the way a wealthy person today might do something generous for someone if they're in the Christmas spirit. No, he is explicitly invoking the Lord, Yahweh. That's what's motivating his godly action. Notice also that Boaz is genuinely moved by Ruth's self-giving heart. He knows she's not here in Israel for herself. She's here in Israel because she loves her mother-in-law. And he views it. He views what she's done in leaving Moab and clinging to Naomi. All the way here, he views it as a serious sacrifice and a noble one. And this is conjecture. But I wonder if Boaz sees in Ruth a picture of his own mother. Do you know who that is? Do you know who is the mother of Boaz? Well, Matthew 1.5 tells us it's Rahab, the, the Canaanite woman of ill repute who risked her life to hide the Hebrew spies. I, I just wonder if Boaz looked at Ruth, a woman with a questionable past, past a zero on the cultural scorecard and sees what others don't a woman taking refuge in Yahweh and making sacrifices for his people just as his own mother did back in Jericho well how does Ruth respond verse 13 may I continue Boaz May I continue, sir, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servants. Have you heard the melody line that's weaving its way through this chapter? Verse 2, Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Verse 10, Boaz, sir, my Lord, why have I found such favor in your eyes? Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes? Let me go see if I can find it. I found it. May I continue to find it? And of course, she's finding favor in the eyes of Boaz because she has found favor. This Moabite Gentile woman has found favor in the eyes of God. Well, after sitting down in the next verses to a meal with Boaz and his men and eating to her heart's content, he, he, Boaz, sends Ruth home with an ephah of barley. Now, just in case, I'm not going to embarrass you in front of others, but just in case you're a little rusty on your ancient Hebrew measurements, this is about 30 pounds, which is like half a month's pay for a male harvester. In other words, Ruth's returning with 15 times more food than anyone else that day. I mean, just this morning, just rewind the clock a few hours, just this morning, Ruth left behind an empty mother-in-law and empty cupboards, and now she is staggering home under the weight of God's provision and care. 
Verse 19, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Someone called this one of the Bible's priceless whiplash moments. I mean, Ruth's been gone all day. Surely Naomi has feared for her safety. At best, she's hoped Ruth will return with enough food to get them through the night, maybe the next day, but this? And yet, for all her astonishment, the real whiplash comes next. Middle of verse 19. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. How disoriented Naomi must have felt. I mean, look how far we've come since chapter one. We, we, we've come from the Almighty has made my life bitter. I've returned empty. He's heaped affliction on me and misfortune on me too. Wait, you were in Boaz's field? The reason it's so significant is because of that last comment she makes. He's one of our family redeemers. This is a legal category. You can read about it at length in Leviticus 25. But essentially it means that Boaz has the ability to buy back Elimelech's land in order to keep it in the family. We'll think about this more on Christmas Day when we look at chapter 4. But look there at verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. Reflecting on Naomi, and it's important to realize this, I know it's called the book of Ruth, but in so many ways, it's actually a story about Naomi, what she loses, what she gains, and what that means for the future of Israel and the future of the world. So reflecting on Naomi, one commentator sums it up well. Quote, it is a dramatic turning point. Right here, it is a dramatic turning point for this female Job. This is the moment when Naomi's hope in Yahweh revives. Not because she senses a budding romance. Not because a little good fortune cures her heartache. It's a turning point because she senses Yahweh's love in the unexpected abundance of barley before her. Although she is a zero in the eyes of the culture, although she's lost everything that might cause someone to value her, although her life has been reduced to rubble and her future is destroyed, Yahweh is not finished with Naomi yet. In Boaz's field. Chapter 3. At his feet. In his field. Chapter 2. At his feet. Chapter 3. Look there at verse 1. 
One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. The, The word home here can be translated security or rest. This was an ancient way of saying, Ruth, I want to find you a husband so you can be protected and provided for and so that you don't have to get up and go out and glean every day of your life. Remember, Naomi had begged Ruth, not suggested politely. She had urged and begged Ruth to go back to Moab. I I can't produce a husband for you in Israel. But now she's effectively saying, yeah, you you know that one thing I told you I under no circumstances could do for you? The the one thing I promised would never happen? Well, let's go do it. I, I really do think we're meant to recall that scene. It's not just a sort of humorous thing to notice. I think we are actually meant to recall that scene on the road back from Moab. And the reason is because the same word shows up. If you recall, what did Ruth say when she was trying to dissuade Orpah and, I'm sorry, what did Naomi say when she was trying to dissuade Orpah and Ruth? She said, the Lord grant that you each find, same word, rest. But she's not saying with me in Israel. She's saying, may the Lord grant that you find rest back home in the house of a new husband. But in yet another whiplash moment, as life and hope are seeping back into Naomi and the wheels of her mind are starting to turn, she says, that rest that that I thought was only available for you back in Moab, I'm going to try to find it for you here, my daughter. Here's the plan. Here is the plan. Verse 2, now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. She's not saying, you're going to go seduce him. She's saying, you've been in the field all day. Be presentable. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. I mean, these are the details that can just seem so odd to us, but I mean, why is she told to uncover his feet? So that his feet will get cold and that he will wake up in a way that doesn't completely freak him out. Although that part of it, she's not completely successful. In other words, he'll get, yeah, he'll get cold. So he'll tell you what to do. Verse five, I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Probably the cool night air. He turned And there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. For modern Western readers, this has got to be one of the most culturally foreign scenes in the Bible. I mean, it's strange. And it wasn't even completely straightforward to Ruth. This is a daring plan Naomi has hatched. I mean, can you just feel the risk pulsing through the story? 
If this goes wrong, if Naomi's little plan goes wrong, if it's misunderstood, misperceived, it's over for Ruth and Naomi. But yet again, in in pretty astonishing loyalty and love, Ruth simply takes the next step, even when she can't see beyond it. Now, it would be low-hanging fruit as a preacher to to apply this uh, kind of immediately, directly. I think it would be to misapply it, to just say, Christian, look at Ruth's courage. Now get out there this week and do something big and bold for Jesus. But the opposite danger, I think, would be to read a story like this and to treat what goes on because it is so foreign to our experience. To, to kind of just treat it like a museum exhibit, safely encased in glass so that it has no chance of actually challenging our lives. But we should be challenged. Ruth isn't necessarily doing everything perfectly in this story, but she is walking by faith, not by sight. I mean, first and foremost, she's placing her trust in Naomi's plan. This is not a plan Ruth came up with. This is not a plan that Ruth knows is going to work out, but she's placing her trust in Naomi's plan, and as we know already from Ruth, also in Naomi's God, and it leads her to do a daring thing. Here's what I think is an appropriate application question from this text. What in your life can only be explained by your faith? What in your life, is there anything in your life that can only be explained by your faith? Something that just wouldn't make sense otherwise. It would not make sense if you weren't following the Lord. This is a home group week. I want to encourage you all in your home groups to discuss that very question. To think about how your faith leads you to do things You otherwise wouldn't. Things that might even make you look foolish in the eyes of the world. And notice Ruth doesn't simply take the next step. She goes above and beyond because Naomi leaves the instructions at, lay at his feet, and then the ball's in his court. Naomi just says, lay at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. But when the moment comes, Ruth has the wherewithal and the audacity to issue a request Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. She doesn't settle for subtlety. She says, marry me, Boaz. My mother-in-law has lost everything and you have a legal responsibility to her family. She's invoking a principle from Deuteronomy 25 and saying, if you marry me, you will carry on Elimelech's name And his widow, whom I love, will be secure. Now, this is probably as good a time as any to say that despite all those edifying book titles that I read to you earlier, the story of Ruth is not dating 101. If you're a single person who longs to be married, if you desire that good thing, God has given you rich wisdom in his word for navigating the complexities of singleness and discontentment and hope for marriage. 
But this unique situation in ancient Israel is not a manual for modern dating. I mean, if anything, I think the lesson from this story for single people is not, here's a strategy, but here's a God. Here is a God you can trust, even when the future seems very uncertain. Well, how does Boaz respond? Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. The reason he says this is because he's older than her. That's why he calls her my daughter and refers to younger men. She's not looking dreamily at Boaz as if he's the ideal eligible bachelor for Ruth. He's not. But she's willing to risk everything to secure blessing for someone else. Boaz continues, verse 11, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And yes, that's the same phrase that shows up in Proverbs 31. A woman of noble character who can find. And in the Hebrew Bible, guess what book immediately follows Proverbs? Ruth. People of character are drawn to people of character. People of character are drawn to people of character. One commentator observes, quote, Boaz is rejecting the culture's value system regarding women by valuing Ruth not for her beauty, her male connections, or her ability to produce a son, but for her character and her radical, sacrificial love for Naomi. And little did Boaz realize way back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, May the Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you've done for Naomi. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Little did he realize that he would become the answer to his own prayer. But there's just one obstacle. Verse 12. Boaz says, although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he isn't willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. The reason Boaz makes this little comment at the end is not because anything inappropriate occurred. It's because how else is it going to look to people? (laughs) I mean, he's not mainly even thinking about his own reputation. He's thinking about hers. He's again going out of his way to care for Ruth. Verse 15, he also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley. That's more than 60 pounds and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. You see how thoughtful he is? He's not only practically providing food. He's also providing Ruth an excuse for why she was there in the first place. Verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Did my plan work? Then Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, 
he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's that word again, rest, rest. Friends, one of my jobs as your pastor who loves you is to de-Disneyfy this story. The lesson is not that if you just bide your time and then seize the opportune moment that you'll find your soulmate and live happily ever after. No, the lesson is that you can trust the Lord. You can trust his providence to bring about his plan. A couple months ago when I preached the story of David and Mephibosheth from 2 Samuel 9, I, I talked about the significance of a Hebrew word that shows up over 250 times in the Old Testament, overwhelmingly with reference to God, and it's the word hesed. Hesed. There's not a great translation. Uh, Different English Bibles translate it as kindness or steadfast love or loving kindness, but it's a rich and robust word referring to God's committed covenant, loyal love for his people. And it's arguably the most important word in the story of Ruth. See, God's hesed love, it can't be thwarted by our circumstances or by our sins. And speaking of our sins, we we have all committed ourselves loyally to things other than God. We have all looked at things other than God and said, where you go, I will go. I will live for you, even to the grave. I'm going to cling to you because I'm looking to you to give me the life and the satisfaction that I need. Because of our sin, we, we are estranged from God. We're not family We're foreigners, the way it was in in the ancient world, enemies of God. We deserve to be exiled, banished from his presence forever. But 2,000 years ago, this God whom we have offended, all of us in this room have offended, this same God came to earth as a baby in the little town of Bethlehem. And for the duration of his life, Jesus Christ was unflinchingly committed to the right thing. He was committed to his heavenly Father, including as he was nailed to a cross to bear the punishment for those of us who have given our loyalty and our love to all kinds of other things. But he rose from that grave and he now offers abundant forgiveness and the promise of family for those who will simply turn away from their sin who will let go of those false saviors and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in this story, the generosity of Boaz points beyond itself to the generosity of God and the humility of Ruth and and her response and saying, how how have you recognized me, a, a foreigner? I don't deserve. That's meant to point beyond Ruth to the way we should respond to recognizing our own unworthiness and accepting the gift of grace that the Lord offers us. 
In a few minutes, I'll be standing at that door at the back of the service. There is nothing I would love more than to discuss with you if you're visiting with us today this astonishing news, which is the message of Christmas. In fact, this room is filled with people who would love to talk to you about how you can let go of your empty commitments and find fullness in committing your life to the Lord. God's Hesed love is the reason we have a gospel to celebrate this morning. We have a gospel that we've been entrusted to treasure, to celebrate, to proclaim, and his Hesed love is the reason we can also trust him every step of the way. Now, his plan, his plan is not obvious. It's often confusing. It's sometimes downright maddening but it's perfect, and he works through bold trust to accomplish it, even in the bleakest of times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that even when we can't see more than a couple of feet in front of our face, even when the the future looks uncertain and bleak, that you call us to trust your providence and your plan and to step out in bold trust. We thank you that even our mistakes, even our missteps cannot thwart your perfect will. Help us to be a church, Lord, that trusts you radically and that whose lives look different as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.